We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day. And night fell on a different world. A world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Welcome to Ground Zero, the first episode of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11. Looking back, 20 years on, at the impacts of 9-11 across the world. On September the 11th, 2001, between 6.45 and 8 a.m., 19 men uneventfully boarded four planes departing from Boston, Logan, Newark and Washington, Dulles airports, taking seats near the front of the planes. At 8.46 and 40 seconds, American Airlines Flight 11 was crashed by five of the hijackers into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. A few minutes later, at 9.03, a second plane, United Flight 175, crashed into the South Tower. At 9.42, the Air Traffic Control System Command Center in Herndon, Virginia, took an unprecedented step. It ordered all aircraft to land at the nearest airport, rapidly leading about 4,500 planes to land safely across the US. But this was too late to prevent a third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, crashing into the western side of the Pentagon at 9.37. And there was a fourth hijacked plane, United Airlines Flight 93. On Flight 93, word had reached passengers of the other planes crashing into buildings. Passengers confronted the hijackers, who then followed orders as to what to do if they could not reach their target. They pointed Flight 93 at the ground and crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. None of the 265 people on board the four planes survived. At the Pentagon, 125 people were killed on the ground. The 9-11 attacks remain the deadliest terror attack in world history. Comprehending the tragedy and what it meant was difficult from the outset. In New York, it took 99 days to put out the fires, and the exact identity of victims are still being identified using new technologies today. 2,731 victims were killed on the ground, bringing the total death toll to 2,996. I am Delina Gojo, and I am Associate Fellow at the Egmont Institute in Brussels and Doctoral Candidate Research in Security Interventions at Scuola Normale Superiore in Italy. And I'm Larry Attri. I'm a researcher and an advocate working on international peace and security policies with Safer World. One of the things about the attacks is that everyone remembers where they were when they happened. On September the 11th, 2001, I was in Kosovo, working for an international mission to help organise democratic elections. It was two years since the US and UK had stepped in to protect the local Albanian Muslim population and help the Kosovo Liberation Army to resist the oppression of Milosevic's Serbia. NATO had helped usher Serbian forces out of what then became an international protectorate. 20 years after 9-11, the possibility of US and Western forces militarily intervening to support an armed insurgency that liberated an oppressed Muslim-majority population from an authoritarian regime seems to me altogether much more remote. 
Nowadays, the US, European and other governments tend to offer authoritarian regimes like the Serbian government help to make their security forces better behaved and more accountable. And they tend to launch countering violent extremism programs to try to stop Muslims' grievances from spilling into violence. When 9-11 happened, I was 11 and I had just arrived in Italy with my family after having left Albania following the breakdown of the communist regime there and also all the social disorder that ensued after 1997. The reaction at the time, even in a small Italian town where I moved in, it was so intense that as a child, I remember making plans with my friends to to capture Osama bin Laden. But I also remember this back thought that I would not tell the police myself that I would send one of my Italian friends because the police would know that my family is Muslim, much like bin Laden's. And this would, it would complicate things. Another thing I remember from the day of the attacks was debating with my colleagues with some trepidation, what would be the consequences of these atrocities? 20 years on, it's still hard to weigh the impact of the attacks. They may well be the most influential historical event of early 20th century history. They remain a touchstone event for Americans and for all those who lost loved ones on that day. And immediate reactions from the day itself to this day centre on their loss and how people came together to help the victims and grieve. Here's President George W. Bush from the Oval Office on September the 11th. The victims were in airplanes, were in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature, and we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring of, for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. For the victims of 9-11, the pain of that day will never be over. But what this series focuses on is the implications of 9-11 not only for all those whose lives were directly and tragically touched that day, but also for billions of others who would feel the ripple effects of all that followed. So this special series of Warpod, Reckoning with 9-11, looks back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world. We will look at the conflicts that emerged in response the legal and security reforms that changed people's lives and societies, the impacts on our culture and our politics. We will hear from people who have experienced the ripple effects, as well as experts who documented and analysed them. And we will ask whether 20 years later, in the words of political commentator Ben Rhodes, it is no longer September 12th. That is, whether we are no longer living in the shadow of 9-11 and we have moved beyond the endless war that these extraordinary attacks brought in their wake. Our journey begins with immediate reaction to the attacks. So much stems from the way a wounded, traumatised nation felt as it wrestled with the anger that followed the realisation that it had been caught unawares and in some senses it had been humiliated by adversaries who had attacked so successfully, apparently without provocation. So anyone who's watched Dr Strangelove, Independence Day or Top Gun might think the US could knock anything out of the sky that could get near Manhattan or the Pentagon or the White House. But during the attacks, federal aviation controllers and officials learned only plane by plane about the hijackings. It wasn't obvious until it was too late what was happening. Their information didn't get through right away to the military, 
The near-simultaneous hijacking of the four planes left little time to respond and effectively sowed confusion among air controllers, the military and the government. And as it turned out, in the words of the 2004 report by the 9-11 Commission, air defenders in the northeast of the US had nine-minute notice on the first hijacked plane, no advance notice on the second, no advance notice on the third, no advance notice on the fourth. Then by around 10.15 that morning, Vice President Dick Cheney had authorised US Air Force planes to shoot down any plane confirmed as hijacked. But his order came after all four planes had already crashed. The procedures and defences just weren't in place for a hijacked plane being converted into a cruise missile. And a plot to do this on multiple planes had simply never been thought of. Nonetheless, it was clear to people in the White House, as soon as they learned of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center, that this was no accident. By 9.45, when he had just heard about the Pentagon being hit, and the attacks were still ongoing, President Bush had already told Vice President Dick Cheney that it sounds like we have a minor war going on here. I heard about the Pentagon. We're at war. Somebody is going to pay. The war on terror has been ongoing ever since, and within a matter of days, a course was charted for the response to 9-11 that would reshape the world and the lives of billions of people in profound ways. If it's true, as analyst Tom Parker has argued, that provoking an overreaction is terrorism 101, and that bin Laden and his accomplices dreamed of getting the US to invade Afghanistan, One tragic realisation when looking back on 9-11 is that these were not only the most deadly attacks in the history of terrorism, but that in many ways their ripple effects may have been just what their authors wanted. In any case, the seeds of what was to follow from 9-11 were very quickly sown. Reckoning with 9-11 And this becomes clear when you listen back to President George W. Bush address to Congress nine days later, on the 20th of September 2001. Bush has sometimes been characterized as a man that is ineloquent, that is uh, caricatured as a buffoon, but this speech is actually a very powerful piece of rhetoric, one which has launched America's longest war and played a role in changing American history. One of the palpable things you can really hear when listening to this speech is the raw emotion. Throughout the speech, the audience in Congress applaud and cheer for minutes on end. The President of the United States. Researchers believe that the psychology of fear, shame and humiliation and how these emotions feed into the tendency for violence to beget violence are important for understanding why conflicts start and go on. You can really hear in the raw emotion of the audience's reaction how a nation, taken by surprise by the abhorrent attacks, are rallying in support of a leader He's promising them stronger defence, justice and revenge. And as Bush says, again to rapturous applause. Our grief has turned to anger, and anger to resolution. Whether we bring our enemies to justice, or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. In fact, Bush's resolve was popular across the political spectrum. According to Gallup, President Bush's approval rating rocketed up from 51% on September 10th to 86% on September 15th. Another thing the speech does is define the way forward as an existential struggle, 
So it would be a struggle between good and evil, light and darkness, terror and freedom. Freedom and fear, justice and cruelty have always been at war, and we know that God is not neutral between them. So the speech is separating the world into two sides, one good and one evil. On one side of the war, the speech identifies Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda as the culprits. But as US Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld reportedly complained at the time, there's not a lot of al-Qaeda to hit. So in his speech, Bush also defines the enemy very broadly. First, he says of al-Qaeda that its goal is remaking the world and imposing its radical beliefs on people everywhere. Then he points out that this group and its leader a person named Osama bin Laden are linked to many other organizations in different countries, including the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. There are thousands of these terrorists in more than 60 countries. With these words, President Bush moves from the specific focus on dismantling al-Qaeda towards a more general pursuit of war on terrorists everywhere. Then he sets his sights on the Taliban regime which then governed Afghanistan and had been hosting Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. It is not only repressing its own people, it is threatening people everywhere by sponsoring and sheltering and supplying terrorists, by aiding and abetting murder. The Taliban regime is committing murder. He issues a series of non-negotiable demands to shut down al-Qaeda that when rejected by the Taliban would trigger the US invasion of Afghanistan. In fact, Bush goes on to say that our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped and defeated. So from this moment, this war will not be on al-Qaeda but on terrorism and its supporters everywhere. Bush defines the enemy incredibly broadly, but on the other side, the good side of this struggle, he lists out those who've come out in support and sympathy with the US. And on behalf of the American people, I thank the world for its outpouring of support. America will never forget the sounds of our national anthem playing at Buckingham Palace, on the streets of Paris, and at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate. We will not forget South Korean children gathering to pray outside our embassy in Seoul or the prayers of sympathy offered at a mosque in Cairo. We will not forget moments of silence and days of mourning in Australia and Africa and Latin America. Nor will we forget the citizens of 80 other nations who died with our own. With a nod to UK Prime Minister Tony Blair in the gallery and to rapturous applause, Bush affirms that the US has no truer friend than Great Britain, helping cement the staunch British support that would be a key feature of the wars ahead. He also tries to clarify, perhaps for those Muslims already aware of the danger of falling under suspicion, that the war on terror is not a war against all Muslims. No one should be singled out for unfair treatment or unkind words because of their ethnic background or religious faith. One of the most powerful statements in Bush's speech is another ultimatum. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. With words like these, it is striking how this speech crystallizes the central contradiction of the war on terror right from the outset. Night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. In the speech, Bush asserts that the US was attacked because it is a beacon. He asks, 
why do they hate us? And answers that they hate what they see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. They hate our freedoms. Another tragic irony running through these words is that the global war on terror launched in the name of defending freedom would ultimately change what the US stood for and how it is related to freedom, both at home and abroad. This is the world's fight. This is civilization's fight. This is the fight of all who believe in progress and pluralism, tolerance and freedom. When Bush says this will be a war to promote freedom, I think he's sincere. But the moment he utters the with us or against us ultimatum, he also redefines America's alliances. For America, the first question to other governments is no longer, do you support democracy, but do you oppose terrorism? So how would the US deal with governments who supported war on terrorism but abused their populations, or those who wanted to exploit the war on terror for their own ends? As we will discuss in this series, this had and is still having important consequences for freedom and stability all over the world. And then one last thing that feels tragic looking back at this speech is the apparent misunderstanding of what Al-Qaeda was trying to do and how it could be opposed. Bush says, These terrorists kill not merely to end lives, but to disrupt and end a way of life. With every atrocity, they hope that America grows fearful, retreating from the world and forsaking our friends. Here, he seems to be remembering the US exit from Somalia after the Black Hawk Down episode, which was a 1993 attack on the US Army involving Al-Qaeda trainees that led the US to withdraw from Somalia. But other evidence suggests that Al-Qaeda was trying to provoke exactly the reaction they got from 9-11. In a call intercepted in July 2001, two members of Al-Qaeda were reportedly overheard, saying it's really a shame the United States did not retaliate for the attack on the USS Cole. That is a deadly attack on a US Navy destroyer in Aden, which took place in October 2000. Exactly. And they go on to say, don't worry, we're planning something so big, they're going to have to retaliate. Then, eight years later, Bin Laden's son Omar told Rolling Stone magazine that my father's dream was to bring the Americans to Afghanistan. So Bush believed 9-11 was intended to get America to retreat, but apparently Al-Qaeda's leaders wanted the US to invade Afghanistan and get bogged down there and perhaps engage in a war between faiths or between civilizations that it could end up losing. So this speech really set the direction for America's reaction to 9-11. Reckoning with 9-11. So before we wrap up, we also want to look at the global reaction to 9-11. And to help us with this, we're joined by Sophie Haspslag, who is an academic at the American University in Cairo and author of an excellent new book on the impact 9-11 had on peace and conflict called Prescribing Peace. So Sophie, earlier on in your book, you talk about 9-11 as this watershed moment for how the world viewed conflict, how the world also viewed armed groups and terrorism. Can you explain a little bit more on that? Sure. So basically, um, we've always named uh, opponents in conflict context as terrorists or, you know, we try and delegitimize um, our opponents in violence. And that's, you know, part and parcel of armed conflicts, right? But what changed quite radically um, with 9-11 is that before you had sort of national prescription regimes or lists that were issued, say, by the United States government 
designating such and such group or by the British government designating, you know, this group or another group. But with 9-11 and after the attacks against the World Trade Center, you in effect had the victim of, you know, a terrorist attack being the greatest power um, in the world. And that very obviously set the agenda in terms of bringing prescription regimes and listing regimes into the multilateral space. So uh, what I mean by that is that all the other countries, you know, on the back of the horror, of course, of the attacks, really wanted to support the US um, in its reaction. And the United States realized that this was a, a sort of a key and golden opportunity to push its agenda at the multilateral level and try and pass resolutions via the United Nations. So literally the day after the attack um, on the 12th of September, the UN Security Council Resolution 1368 was passed, completely condemning, of course, uh, the attacks against the World Trade Center with absolutely no dissenting voice. But they used the word terrorism completely without questioning it or unequivocally. And that was almost one of the first times uh, this was done uh, at the UN. Before, when you spoke about terrorism, it was very much a topic at the General Assembly level. It was seen as uh, somehow contentious because certain countries would want to protect the right of certain armed groups of using violence for, say, reasons of self-determination. Other countries uh, very much wanted to call certain armed groups terrorists. And what happened after 9-11 was through the passing of UN Security Council Resolution 1368, but then afterwards, with UN Security Council Resolution 1373, there was a sort of um, a complete agreement and um, pushing through in the multilateral space uh, for the first time of a UN Security Council resolution used the notion of the right of self-defense of the UN against non-state armed groups for the first time. Um, and so that's a really big watershed, a really big change. Before that, this article had only ever been used against states. And the other thing that happened was that UN Security Council Resolution 1373, because it was under Chapter 7, made it mandatory for all members of the United Nations to set up um, lists, so blacklists, and have lists of uh, what are described as, as prescribed entities. And this led to hundreds uh, of blacklists worldwide. In 2011, for instance, uh, one of my colleagues, Mareike de Goud, uh, counted up to 214 blacklists worldwide. And today we have even more than that. It would it would still be useful, I think, to to hear more about what the implications of these resolutions were, because you've painted a fairly grim picture of what was passed right after the attacks. But then what were some of the most striking consequences to this, you believe? As I mentioned, because the focus was on non-state actors for the first time, it very much redefined how non-state armed actor violence was perceived. If before, maybe there was some hesitancy from certain countries considering them more like freedom fighters or terrorists, and there was maybe arguments to be made on both sides, it was very clear that from 9-11 onwards, all groups became terrorists, right? So it very much became a sort of a black and white uh, situation. All countries worldwide were encouraged to develop their own prescription regime, which in effect meant that any government could use this to develop listing regimes and include, you know, 
on their blacklist completely at their own discretion, whichever group um, they deem uh, to be a terrorist. And these can often be used against, you know, political opponents, um, civil society activists, a, a wide range of, of actors. The other very direct consequence is that, as I mentioned before, in armed conflicts, you could always um, label your opponent a certain way, right? But that didn't necessarily come with international legitimacy, right? Say we are, we're in a conflict together, uh, Larry against me, um, you know, I'm calling you a terrorist, Larry. Um, well, that's my opinion of you, right? But if, uh, say, Delina's the, the UN and she says, uh, well, yeah, we agree, you know, Larry's on the list, then that's, this gives me huge legitimacy, right, at the international level. And this mm -hmm. came along with very clear symbolic and material consequences. So symbolically, you kind of become part and parcel of the global fight against terrorism, you know, armed groups as diverse as the Tamil Tiger, the Communist Party in Nepal, the PKK, so the Kurdistan Workers Party in, in Turkey, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia in Colombia, alongside Al-Qaeda, Taliban, etc. So all homogenized and lumped in together, um, creating this sort of new reality. But hand in hand with that is that you have an increase um, in sort of military support um, and assistance, um, intelligence support, uh, all towards the governments, right, uh, making these lists. And so, in effect, um, you have a sort of an increase in the asymmetry in the relationship as well, uh, in the conflict context, where the government ends up being, you know, bolstered even more, right, in its fight um, against its internal enemy. So then, Sophie, what does this mean for mediation then? Well, it has huge implications at different levels. I think first and foremost, it has an impact on the conflict parties themselves, where the government ends up being bolstered to a huge extent, feels much less pain, I guess, of the reality of the conflict and much less probably willingness uh, to move towards potential negotiation. On the other hand, the listed group tends to see its political space shrunk radically and very little uh, perspective of a sort of a way out right a political exit or what i describe as a political landing strip and then the other big consequence is how it's affected what could be described as third-party actors right mediators go-betweens because this third-party contact has often been criminalized right especially in the context of say u.s prescription regimes it comes with a 15-year prison tag to be in touch with one of these listed groups. So this has reduced and shrunk the space for the possibility of engagement with those listed groups and trying to get them to see a non-violent and political path and an exit, you know, out of the armed conflict. Yeah, so it's ironic in a way that, as we've heard, a war that's been started in the name of expanding freedom essentially works in a way that puts rebel groups around the world on a blacklist and makes it unacceptable that you'd end up around the table with them and potentially cutting them into a power sharing deal. So in a way, it's a prescription for less freedom and potentially endless war. Exactly. I mean, what it is, it's um, you, you're raising the entry costs, you know, you're, you're making it impossible to even start um, the process of dialogue. Um, you know, you've obviously built up these groups as well as terrorists and as people that cannot be um, 
reasoned with or don't necessarily respond to, to rational thoughts. You know, you, you build up as well uh, huge costs when it comes to um, how citizens and countries, you know, see these groups. It's a sort of a extreme vilification, if you like, of these armed groups. And the governments end up in a sort of a policy straitjacket, right? Their options are really diminished. Um, they can't start a political engagement with these groups publicly, at least. So they're left with, with very little options apart from uh, often military strategies. And as we well know, ending these wars require uh, political um, solutions. And for that, you need to be able to dialogue and engage and be in contact with these groups. Okay, thanks so much for joining us today, Sophie. That's all we have time for on the first episode of Reckoning with 9-11. We'll come back later in the series to how these rapid global reactions change the paradigm for how the world responds to security threats. I'm Larry Atri. And I'm Delina Gojo. Thank you for listening. This special WarPod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by The Podcast Company. Next time on Reckoning with 9-11. They will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. We look at how the response to 9-11 led to the war in Afghanistan, how that war faltered and its impacts on those it affected. Listen, follow and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org produced in cooperation with Safer World.